0: An article in the LA Times, October the 25th, 2020, by journalist Rosanna Jarre, XIA, dramatizes the casual indifference of industry over the years to the natural environment that sustains life. And the assumption that whatever we toss into our oceans or maybe our unoccupied land tracts, mother nature will clean up after us. True that over the past half century and more, government intervention and regulation have put some brakes on industry. Nonetheless there's plenty of evidence that certain sins of the past remain to haunt us. A case in point is the dumping of no one knows how many barrels of the highly toxic pesticide DDT once praised as a miraculous antidote for malaria and also a crop booster for farmers. In the 1960s The largest manufacturer of DDT in the world was the Montrose Company located in Los Angeles. And Montrose got rid of its surplus sludge from the manufacturing process in those metal barrels originally off Catalina Island, later in the waters off Palos Verdes Peninsula. Professor David Valentine of the UCSB Marine Science Department has known of this dump for years but it was only in 2013 on getting hands on uh, an underwater robot, was he able to map the area more precisely. And the next step was to transcribe electronic signals into photographs. An example of which is by the way is reproduced in the Times article.
1: I have always been interested in DDT and and more generally in in chemicals in the ocean. And so I've made a a bit of a study of um, uh, tracking the, the history of um, uh, releases into the ocean. And I, I, for a long time, had known about the uh, the releases that occurred on the continental shelf, which is the shallow waters just off of Palos Verdes. And that was a, a well-known story um, uh, that those uh, the, the waste materials from the, the manufacturing of DDT, which was done in Torrance in, in LA. Um, those waste materials were dumped uh, into the storm drain originally, and so they just flowed uh, right into the the coastal ocean. Um, And then uh, later on, when that was banned, um, they were dumped into the sanitary sewer, and so they would go through the sewage processing facility and then
0: be released. His general knowledge of Montrose's behavior became far more precise when he tracked down a report written by an official in the Los Angeles Water Quality Control Board, the author had access to Montrose's disposal methods and reported when the company had first resorted to the use of barrels, having been prohibited from simply running the excess sludge directly into the Pacific by way of the sewer lines.
1: So I, I had known about that, and, um, and it always kept a, a little bit of an eye on, on what had happened with that. Um, including reading some of the the literature um, from the 1990s uh, that uh, uh, work that that different scientists had done. And in one of those papers, I came across a a reference to a report that was in the Gray Literature, so something that was not peer-reviewed, that um, uh, talked about uh, the dumping of these barrels uh, of uh, toxic waste materials, including uh, the the byproducts from the manufacture of DDT, um, the, the solid waste products, that is, uh, the things that couldn't be put into the, the storm sewer or, uh, or the storm drain or the sanitary sewer. Um, and, and so I tracked down um, uh, this rather difficult to find report. It was not digitized, so I had to use the interlibrary loan. Uh, UCLA happened to have a copy of it. Um, and so they, um, they sent it to me by, by interlibrary loan. And the report um, outlined um, a, a series of um, activities that uh, the, the chemical company that was making DDT had, uh, had undertaken that involved uh, taking their solid waste streams um, from the byproducts of DDT manufacture, putting them in barrels, uh, taking them to a barge, and then um, uh, barging them offshore and, uh, and dumping them uh, in, uh, uh, initially north of Catalina Island, but uh, according to that report, they, uh, the military was active there, and so the, the dumping company decided that they would dump closer to shore, um, which is uh, uh, off uh, between Catalina and the mainland.
0: The name of that official is Alan Chartrand, who managed to talk directly to Montrose officials and kept accurate notes of records, barge, manifests, and other logs, and had the good sense to keep all those records, which now undigitized, still remain in the UCLA library and in public domain, which is how David Valentine got hold of them. Decades later, Professor Valentine was able to validate and finally produce visual proof of what Alan Chartrand could only assume from limited technical resources. Major advances in technology reinforced by government support ultimately gave him and his team access to the evidence they were looking for. And a little bit of context there. Um, I do
1: coastal uh ocean work off California. And I have um, expeditions typically funded by the National Science Foundation. um, And I've managed uh, to have them about every other year for the last um, 15 years or so, almost 20 years now. Um, And so with those expeditions, um, we're often using remotely operated vehicles or autonomous underwater vehicles in combination um, to study different processes and features of the seafloor. And so uh, one of my study sites happens to be about six or seven miles away from this, um, this designated dumping area. Uh, and so uh, on one of these expeditions we had completed our primary mission and we always have to build in some downtime uh, in case there's uh, delays due to weather or, um, or other purposes. And so we, um, we had a, a bit of a uh, Uh, downtime remaining at the end of the cruise, which allowed us to uh, go over to the site and to to use it as a test of the um, the autonomous logic for an underwater vehicle. And so the idea uh, was that the group that was with us that ran this autonomous vehicle um, is interested in things like life detection on foreign planets. like an icy moon of Jupiter. Um, where robots have to make their own decisions about how to study a given environment. And so um, the autonomous vehicle, you you drop it off the side of the boat and it goes and it does its thing. And it has a suite of sensors um, that it's outfitted with. And in this case, we were um, focused in on a handful of its sensors, and that would be the, the multi-beam echo sounder, um, where it can create ultra high resolution maps of the seafloor. Uh, and we outfitted it with a a stereo paired uh, photo imaging system. So it could also fly down to the seafloor, which is about 3000 feet deep at that location uh, and start taking pictures. It has a strobe light and a stereo pair camera. And so um, we, uh, we first sent it down to do the, the multi-beam echo sounding and to, to get some maps of the seafloor. So we, you know, just to see if we could see anything. And when we got that data back and processed it shipboard, um, there were a whole bunch of odd pixels, all in an in a uneven line um, that very much looked like a line of breadcrumbs or a whole bunch of barrels that had been dumped from a slowly drifting barge. Um, and so that was our, our first um, moment of, of realizing, okay, there, there really is a bunch of stuff down here.
0: The next step was to photograph the initial electronic information from that deep water autonomous probe. What emerged was evidence of a dump of horrendous dimensions, this time from cameras attached to an unmanned submarine some 3,000 feet below the surface. Despite all the evidence discovered so far, Valentine knows there's much to be done. And he also wonders about related toxic dumping on the continental shelf, just off the Palos Verdes Peninsula, as I've mentioned. All told, there could be up to 500,000 barrels of toxic sludge, many leaking after about half a century of decay on the ocean floor in this area. We need to get down there and actually get a reasonable count and
1: um, an understanding of what is the real scope of what's going on down there. You know, We know there's a whole bunch of barrels. We know there's DDT because um, our samples pulled up um, exceptionally high concentrations of DDT in, in some Select samples. Um, so we know that there's DDT that was dumped there, DDT slag that was dumped there. We know there were, um, there's barrels all over the place. Um, but we don't, um, we, we have to really go and make a concerted effort to understand um, how many
0: barrels and how much of the slag and what else is down there. What is the history of DDT? And why is it so feared so many years after being dumped in the ocean off the coast of Los Angeles? In 1939, the Swiss scientist Paul Hermann Muller published his work on the compound, which he promoted as an effective insecticide. And for this work, he won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1949. In World War II, it was widely used on American soldiers, directly by the way, to protect them from malaria and typhoid fever when fighting in Africa and Italy and elsewhere. But the dangers were evident to close observers such as Rachel Carson, the author of the classic Silent Spring, in which she wondered about the disappearance of songbirds on the Eastern seaboard of the United States. Carson's book is often credited with galvanizing the environmental movement. DDT was eventually banned in 1972, which actually coincides with the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency, EPA. David Valentine summarized the continuing and lasting dangers of this once embraced magical product. You know, a big
1: part of the, the problem with, with DDT and, and similar sorts of compounds, um, you know, it, it, it starts back with the, uh, the mentality that uh, of that era that uh, dilution is the solution to pollution. And what I think nobody recognized at the time or very few people recognized, is that compounds like DDT, um, they are soluble in fat. And as a result, they will magnify their way um, up the food chain because they get stored inside the, the fat of, uh, of animals. And so over the lifetime of an animal, it will keep accumulating um, things like DDT. And then um, if there's an, a predator that eats those animals, it is then getting um, all of that accumulation of everything that it eats over its lifetime. And so we call this biomagnification. And it is exactly opposite of the dilution um, that uh, people sought to, to achieve in, uh, in dealing with, um, with pollution by dumping it into the ocean. And so um, I, I think that uh, this whole biomagnification problem um, really uh, is the, the counter to that dilution issue that, that people thought they were um, was a good thing back
0: in the 1950s. Environmental science in the decades since World War II certainly put to rest the deceptive adage that the, quote, solution to pollution is dilution. DDT remains stable and intact in the biosphere after so many years at the bottom of the ocean. It cannot simply be washed away. Decades of research have shown David Valentine and colleagues the exact danger the DDT poses to the environment. The stuff leaking into the Pacific from these huge numbers of barrels invades the food chain on which fish and avian life depend. The consequences are what Rachel Carson observed 60 years ago. Bald eagles and falcons have virtually disappeared from, for example, the Santa Barbara Channel Islands. neighboring habitats. Brown pelicans produce eggs with shells so frail their young cannot hatch. DDT stays in the gut of mammals and we see high levels of blubber in female sea lions giving birth prematurely. To this day, the public is warned to stay away from a number of fish caught close to shore near Palos Verdes and also Santa Monica. And how does the future look to David Valentine and the ranks of environmental scientists daily testing the pulse of the planet? The changing of the guard in Washington is finally underway. David and his colleagues are hopeful that minds and ears will be more receptive and open to their research and their legitimate requests for support.
1: Yeah, and I I think that's the way things are um, are working out now. The um, the LA Times article um, that uh, that Rosanna Shaw wrote, um, I think, has opened up the eyes of, of many of these agencies, and um, I, I think they are now receiving quite a bit of pressure, um, both public and political, um, to figure out what to do about the situation. Um, so I am optimistic that um, that things are going to change. Um, uh, largely because the article has brought all of this to uh, to light.
0: David Valentine credits the LA Times and reporter Rosanna Jarre for alerting the public to the dangers of such environmental violations and reporting the efforts underway both to inform about and remediate the damage done. Science and, journal- and journalism can do a lot to inform the public. This is Harry Lawton reporting for KCSB.